Hello, I am Lynn Kitchens. I'm so glad to be here with you today. Little did you know that today would be looking at a donkey that talks. <laughs> Just so happens in my house, I have a donkey that talks. This is the donkey. And I'm the one who makes it talk. To my two little granddaughters, Alice and Sylvie. And I just have to tell you, um, first of all, Sylvie is terrified of it, so <laughs> if she's not behaving, I can just take it out. Um, <laughs> so I don't want to brag, but I've gotten really good at being a ventriloquist. You will never see my lips move when this donkey talks, so I'm going to show you. Just watch. Good morning, donkey. So, how are you today? Okay, and tell me about, have you ever studied the Bible before? Yes, I like to study the Bible. <laughs> I like Numbers 22, it's all about me. You didn't see my lips move. <laughs> okay, enough of the donkey. Okay, so the TV show everybody's talking about right now is called This Is Us, the title of your outline. And uh, I have not seen it. I know it's about family, though, so I thought I'd steal it. I thought that this was a perfect title for what we're going to talk about today because Christians are part of a forever spiritual family. We are united in the love of God just as Israel was. This is us. We are children of the loving Father that we have. And so like Israel, we are called to be God's. We are called to fulfill God's purposes. We can do this. Because our father is a protective father, he is a strong father, he is a generous father, and he's our only divine father. This was true for Israel as well, even when they lost sight of that. And so the Chris Tomlin song we just sang, he's a good, good father, that's who he is. We are loved by him that's who we are. This is us. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading these chapters and numbers, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'm seeing people die. I'm seeing people catch on fire and fall through the earth and get plagues. And we kind of lose sight of who God really is. But I found this passage after listening to Cody last Sunday in Malachi that really explains these things about Israel. Look on your verse sheet, Malachi 6. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasure possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and the one who doesn't serve him. I think part of the problem is for us when we can be reading these chapters is we make the mistake of focusing on the wrath of God and his punishment 
and not so much on the people. Israel illustrates the reality that awaits everybody that God has created. God calls those who fear him his treasured possession. They are mine, he says. But rejecting the creator who gave you life, who loves you, brings a consequence of death, physically and spiritually, not because God is unloving, but because we are unloving. The children of Israel often rebelled against the love of their father, the love of their God while they were in the wilderness. Look at Numbers 14. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs I have done for them. And so it's every person on earth. It's their choice to either embrace the love of their creator or complain and rebel against it. John tells us about how God entered our world because he wanted to embrace us. Look at John 1. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God when we receive that love of God. When we love God, we become his children. This is us. You know, God had been displaying his goodness and love to Israel, and now they're journeying toward the promised land, and he's been providing for them. He's been dwelling with them. He's been guiding them. And now we've been seeing the last couple weeks how he's been leading them into these victorious battles against Canaanites and Amorites as they go toward that fruitful land that God has promised them. And today we find them resting in the plains of Moab. They're preparing to enter Canaan. And the king of Moab is shaking in his boots or maybe shaking in his sandals. <laughs> Israel was actually a kinsman of Moab. They were descendants of Lot, Abraham's nephew. And so the Midianites were also living in the land with Moab at this time. They were also descendants of Abraham. Neither of them really needed to fear Israel. Midian was a child of Abraham that he had with his last wife, Keturah, after Sarah died. That's where the Midianites came from. But none of that mattered to King Balak. All he could see was a massive number of people that had conquered the Amorites, and they were breathing down his neck. He was terrified by their size, and by their power. So he knew conventional warfare wasn't going to amount to much against this mighty nation, and so he resorted to seek help from the powers of darkness. He was determined to fight the hand of God rather than submit to it. So he called out to this famous diviner or sorcerer named Balaam. He lived in Pethor, a city on the Euphrates River, Historians have discovered that in that area, there was a whole cult of false prophets that lived there. So as a pagan false prophet, Balaam liked to practice magic. He liked to practice divination. 
Divination would involve receiving hidden knowledge about the future. He would also practice incantation, which would be using occult power to uh, pronounce blessings and curses. And so as Israel's calmly camped in the plains of Moab, they had no idea that plans for evil were surrounding them, evil curses from Balaam. So let's look at chapter 22, verse 7. So the elders of Moab and of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand, and they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. And Balaam said to them, Well, lodge here tonight. I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Well, it's Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now curse them for me. Perhaps I'll be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they're blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning said to the princes of Balak, Go to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Okay, so Balak's counting on two things to influence Balaam's decision to come or not. First, he sent this really impressive delegation of elders and princes to him. And then he gave a handsome fee for Balaam's services. So in these days, everybody believed that each nation had its own gods, and Balaam was the one they would hire who would intercede for the particular gods of their people. That was what he did. He did it for a prophet. So Balaam knew the God of Israel was one God. It was Jehovah. And so he planned to seek the will of Israel's God about this summon. He believed a people's own God has the most power to do good or bad to the people. So he's going to talk to the God of Israel. Did you notice how he casually throws around the word Lord? Well, I'll talk to the Lord, my Lord. Uh, very interesting kind of manipulative thing to do. The term Lord in these verses is actually a term when you have a covenant relationship with God. Balaam had no covenant relationship with God. You'll notice another thing. When God communicates with Balaam, it's only the word God, never the Lord talking to Balaam because they didn't have that kind of a relationship. And did you notice it was God who first came to Balaam? Balaam didn't bring God to himself. God went to Balaam. God had a plan all along. And God made his will very clear. Don't go. Don't curse them. They are blessed by me. And he sent the delegation home. But here's why. He knew without Israel's God on his side, he would fail. He was not stupid. <laughs> he knew about how Israel conquered the Amorites. He knew how they conquered other nations. And so he didn't want to go without God uh, agreeing to it. But he also didn't explain to the princes when he sent them home that Israel couldn't be cursed because God had blessed them. So he left that door open on that subject. 
When Balak, the king, heard the news, he sent a more impressive delegation of princes. He also promised great honor and obedience for Balaam because Balaam's selfish motives were well known. And that may be why he actually even sent them home the first time, hoping they'd up the ante the second time. Look at verse 18. But Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I couldn't go beyond the command of the Lord my God to do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight, that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the prince's of Moab. If he didn't know any better, you might think Balaam was a godly man. In reality, he was a greedy man. He was a manipulative man. There are two lies in this statement. First of all, the Lord was not Balaam's God, even though he says he was in these verses. He probably said it to impress his visitors by claiming to have a connection with this powerful God of Israel. Secondly, he would soon sell his services for less than a houseful of silver and gold, as he said he would not do. That's why he invited the delegation to stay another night. If he wanted to obey God, he would have just said, I told you no, God told me no. The people of Israel are blessed, go home. But he doesn't do that because he's looking in the prince's backpacks. Pretty good stuff in there. Let me just ask my Lord, the God, if I should go with you or not. God had already told him no. Since Balak was offering Balaam even greater things, Balaam tried to get God on his side. That's why he asked him to stay. God couldn't have been more clear the first time, but once again, it is God who comes to Balaam. While Balaam tried to manipulate God, God would use Balaam to accomplish his own purposes. So it was time for Balaam to get on his donkey, time for him to face Israel's protective father. The Lord gave him permission to go, but unknown to Balaam, God would meet him on the way. Balaam thought he could fool God like he fooled lots of men, pretending to have one motivation when he really had another motivation. God would stand in resistance to this unrighteous motive, the motive of using cursing to gain riches and honor. Peter said something about it. Look at 2 Peter. He's talking about false, God, false prophets here. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, he loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression for a mute donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrain the madness of the prophet. So as they're trotting along these dusty paths, God himself appears as an angel of the Lord to um, punish Balaam's motives. He stood in the way. The first time he just came and he stood in a road and so the donkey saw him went off into a field. Balaam beats his donkey. Second time they're walking between two narrow walls in a vineyard. 
The donkey sees the angel of the Lord and pushes against a wall. I don't know, how many of you have ever had a horse push you into something in your foot? Yeah, it's no fun. If we only could have talked to him. (laughs) So Balaam strikes his donkey again. The third time they're in a path where you couldn't turn right or left. It's so narrow. There's the angel of the Lord standing in the way. The donkey just drops to the ground. That really infuriates Balaam, and he's beating his donkey. Let's see what happens next, verse 28. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you, that you struck me these three times? Balaam said to the donkey, Because you made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, then I would kill you. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey, which you've ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And Balaam said, no. Okay, the first thing we all wonder about is, why is Balaam not shocked out of his mind when his lifelong donkey talks to him? And it would be scary, wouldn't it? It would be scary. But we have to remember, Balaam was a pagan sorcerer. He dabbled in the occult. He had probably experienced many strange things in the spirit world. And maybe some dark forces had communicated with him in some pretty mysterious ways in the past. But never had he met a force like the one he's about to meet. Verse 31, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. He saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. He bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she hadn't turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned. I didn't know you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it's evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Balaam, as a false prophet, he had been playing with many powers in his life that he didn't understand. But now he finds himself face to face with the power of the one true God. And he falls down with his face to the ground. We can see here that this angel was not just an angel. um, Because... This angel accepts Balaam's worship as he's bowing on the ground. This is God coming before him. We also see in these verses that the angel is equated with powers that only deity could do. So God opens the eyes of Balaam, and Balaam not only sees better this way, but he also sees better understanding-wise that God is showing him, your intentions don't line up with my intentions. Your way is perverse. Perverse means to push headlong. And that is what Balaam was doing here. Because of money and glory, he's pushing head on to go to this man who wants to curse this nation that God has blessed. Balaam acknowledges his sin, but only partially. Oh, sorry, I didn't see you there. That's kind of his answer. I'll turn around if you want. 
But he doesn't mention his manipulation. He doesn't mention his greediness. And so God is gracious to allow him to continue and give him another opportunity to submit to God. God protected Israel from the plans of this terrified king and a manipulative false prophet. Meanwhile, Israel still going about their business, oblivious to everything God was doing to protect them from being cursed. And I thought, I wonder how many evils God has protected us from on a road that might have taken us to our ruin. You know, how often are we just peacefully going about our day, oblivious to all that he's doing? That's a blessing. That's a gift to us. We don't have to live our lives looking over our shoulders all the time. We can live our faith out peacefully because we have a protective father. He's a good, good father, and we're loved by him. This is us. You know, Ted and I were talking, and I said, give me an illustration of a time your dad really protected you from something. And then I said, I'm going to try to think. <laughs> we couldn't come up with any illustration of, like, falling out of an airplane and our dad grabbing us. <laughs> or falling down a mountain and our dad at the bottom catching us. But then I thought, hey, that's a perfect illustration. Just by who my dad is has been a protection. Because he was faithful to my mom, I was protected. Because he was faithful to his children and did his job well, I had a house that I got to live in. When I married my husband, he was, he, um, was grateful and honored our marriage, which protected us from conflict. So I didn't ever live in fear because of who he was. Same is true with our Holy Father. God stands in the way of any evil intentions to harm us because that's who he is. And he's doing it all day long. So we can live in peace and trust that. It doesn't mean that we don't have some dark days in this fallen world. There are times when that path is there and God steps aside and lets trials and hardships come our way. But here's what we need to always remember. He still owns the path. He owns the path. There's nothing that surprises him. There's nothing that can overcome him. There's nothing that can change his plans for us. You know, I thought about the people of Israel. Why didn't God just carry him over the Red Sea? No. He made him walk through it. It was good for them. They learned who he was. He has plans for us when we face those kind of red seas in our lives. So as we're stumbling in the darkness, since he owns the path, we recognize, well, he's right here with me. I can, I can hold his hand. He can go before me. He's strong. He's comforting me. He's guiding me. And then God takes those hard things and fits them into his good plans for us. That's why we can have peace. Even in those hard things, God is in control. Romans 8.28 tells us, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
That's our peace in hard things. Okay, God's able to do that because he's our strong father. He can direct evil however he sees fit. No one and nothing can change the plans of God. In this story, Balak and Balaam's plans for cursing are going to be turned into blessings. Look at Deuteronomy 23. The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. I thought it was so interesting in this part of the story. Balak and all his group of princes and elders and Balaam go to a high place to look down on Israel. The place they go to is a site dedicated to the worship of Baal. You know, their entire life perspective came out of their devotion to the God of Baal. That's how they saw life. We're going to see this as Balaam's drive for the rest of his short life. So right here they began divination, pagan rituals that they would do for the God of Baal. On the top of the mountain, looking down on Israel. So they're sacrificing animals. And then they would cut open the animals. And they would examine their organs. And they would be looking for omens. This was a pagan false prophet practice. Even though Balak and Balaam offered these sacrifices on pagan altars, it was God alone who gave Balaam the first oracle. Those gods aren't real gods. Only the one true God is God. So I want us to envision the scene. We've got the fire on the top of the hill. We've got the smoke. We've got the smells of the animals. And we've got the men eager to hear cursing against this nation at the bottom of the hill. The first oracle, though, ends up being about Israel being a chosen people. Look at verse 7 in chapter 23. Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram, Balak has brought me the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him. From the hills I behold him. Behold a people dwelling alone not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright. Let my end be like his. So God turned a call for cursing into an opportunity to bless his nation that he loved. As Balaam looks down over the hills at these people, this is what he saw. A nation. Chosen by God to be special, unlike any other people in the world, like a people dwelling alone, not counting itself among the nation with their false gods. They were numbered also beyond what anyone could imagine. Who could count their dust, Balaam says, or even one-fourth of Israel. Remember that Israel camped in four separate sections around the tabernacle? Balaam is thinking, I can't even count one of those sections. Israel was set apart from all the other nations to be a holy, mighty nation for God. And as Balaam spoke these words of blessings, it's like he got overcome by it. And he said, I wish I was one of them. 
I wish I could be a part of them. Israel is blessed because those whom God has blessed cannot be cursed. And I thought, you know, that's true for the church. In that sense, the church is also a mighty nation that cannot be cursed. Like Israel, by God's strength, we are also set apart, unlike any lost people on the face of the earth, to live a life dedicated to him, an abundant life filled with blessings. Look at Ephesians 2. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. No one, nothing can harm God's children. We can never spiritually die. Now, if someone takes our life physically, guess where we go? Into our Father's arms. No one can stop his plans. What Christ has accomplished on the cross will never be undone. Those whom God blesses cannot be cursed because he's a good, good father. And we're loved by him. This is us. Of course, Balak was not happy with this outcome. The princes were scratching their heads. Well, that didn't really go like we thought it would. Balak thinks if he takes Balaam to another place, he'll commence with the cursing. He's missing the reality of the greatness of God and God's people. So the second oracle is all about how Israel is a conquering people. This time they go to the top of Mount Pisgah. Once again, Balak and the princes and Balaam are waiting to hear the cursing. They've got their divination going. Balaam helped them with it. There they are amidst the smoke. Once again, Balaam would have no power to curse Israel. In fact, he starts the second oracle by saying, well, man is untrustworthy and unreliable. He's pretty much talking about himself. But what? God is designed to do, he will do. His word stands, and he's designed to bless Israel. Look at verse 19, chapter 23. God isn't man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he won't do it? Or has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? Behold, I've received a command to bless. He's blessed, and I can't revoke it. He's not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them. The shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there's no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It doesn't lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. God is pictured in this oracle as this strong and mighty God. He is the shout of a king in Israel. That means he is Israel's warrior. He's leading them to victory. And because of him, Israel is like the strong horns of an ox when they left Egypt. And then Balaam says, what possible power could sorcery have against them? None. 
Nothing. Since God was Israel's warrior, they would be victorious, facing their enemies like mighty lions rising up. And other nations like Moab would marvel at the God of Israel and the power of Israel's God. This is a truth for us today as well. It's so easy for us to forget. We don't have to do life in our own strength. We approach those battles relying on the shout of our king, meaning he's a warrior for us, and he's mighty for us. Look at Proverbs 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Philippians, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I have a a friend that I always marvel at because she believes this so much. and, And God has taken the things in her life to have her grow in her faith in him because she lives alone. Uh, She has nobody supporting her but herself, and um, her kids don't live near her. And every time I see her, she's got a huge, hard thing going on in her life. I mean, so hard, and she acknowledges they're hard. She recently just had a major surgery. And I went to see her and took her some food, and she began to say what she always said. I don't know what God's going to do, but he's going to do something. I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but God will get me through it. You know, and she looked at me, he always does. He always does. That's what we're supposed to remember. She's not supposed to tackle all those things in her own strength. We have a God who loves us, who wants to help us and be our mighty warrior. For a third and final time, Balak set the stage for Balaam to curse Israel. They arrive at the top of Mount Peor, close to where Israel's encamped in the plains of Moab. And again, they prepare their ritual of divination. Balak was a really slow learner, doing the same exact thing again, crying out to Baal and the false gods, But Balaam began to see the futility of this ritual, and he sets his face towards the wilderness. He's closer now to Israel. He's getting a better look at them. He saw the people of Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God comes over him, and he falls to the ground, overwhelmed with the vision he sees. We will see... Even with this, he will still reject the God of Israel. And I think it's a great illustration. People can see the reality of God and still choose to go their own way. He's an example of that. So this third oracle is about Israel becoming a contented people in their own land because they're loved by a generous God. Look at chapter 24, verse 5. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens besides a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. 
Water shall flow from his buckets, and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt, and is for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries. He shall break their bones in places, and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched. He lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. This is the land of milk and honey that Balaam has seen, that God has promised Israel. And did you notice how much he talks about water? Water signified prosperity. The dwelling places would be situated like beautiful flowers and trees in a garden. Beauty. And bounty would abound in Israel's land because of the blessings of God. And now God describes in these verses a new king for Israel, verses 7 through 9. This king would bring about the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant to Israel and to other nations. He will be greater than Agog. This was probably a term used for all the Amalekite kings. And if you remember, the Amalekites were the first nation to assault and attack Israel when they left Egypt. They were descendants of Esau. This coming king will be like a lion from Judah, fulfilling the prophecy from Genesis. Look on your verse sheet. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And look how this is exactly what Balaam just prophesied. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And he finishes this vision by speaking the words God spoke to Abraham earlier. Blessed are those who bless you. Cursed are those who curse Israel. All nations who bless Israel will reap blessings from God in the future. And I thought, wow, God has also prepared a fulfilling life for us here until we go to him there, to our promised land. He's prepared a place for us. He's promised that, our forever home. But meanwhile, we can be content here like Israel. We have a spirit. We have the church. We have his promises. We have a purpose to know him and bring glory to him. These are gifts from our generous father. And guess what? They're all so bountiful. They're all so beautiful. He's a good, good father and we're loved by him. This is us. I'm surprised at this point that Balak didn't just kill Balaam. And I thought, you know why I think he didn't? He was afraid of him because he had those supposed powers. He does, though, tell Balaam, flee and get away from me since you won't curse Israel for me. But Balaam won't flee until he shares another oracle about the future of Israel, which lets us know that a Messiah, a king, will come from this nation of Israel. Some of the prophecies he shares have taken place in history, but they will be fulfilled when Christ reigns on his throne. Look at verse 17. Balaam says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, 
but not near, a star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be disposed. Shear also, his enemies shall be disposed. Israel's doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the city. So the prophesied star and the scepter from Israel speak of the coming of the Messiah his kingship and his reign. Remember, what were the wise men looking for to find the king, the Messiah from Israel? The star. They looked for the star. And the king was being born in a manger. And Genesis 49 also tells us a scepter will never depart from Judah. That baby in a manger under a star was from the tribe of Judah. Judah holding a scepter, meaning he would reign. He is king, the king of Israel. And Jesus will have total dominion. And when we read that, we think, well, what's our place here? He's not a king that we can't know. He can have total dominion over our heart. He reigns in our hearts as king, and we have a gracious place in his kingdom. Together, we will all have a role to play in the kingdom of our Savior. Back to our friend Balaam. He was unsuccessful in cursing Israel, but he did play a role in Israel's seduction toward Baal. Revelations 2.14 tells us that Balaam taught Balak how to put a stumbling block before Israel, which would lead Israel into sexual immorality and the worship of Baal, the worship of false god, the mixing with people who worship false gods. And Balak did this through Balaam's teaching by inviting the Israelites to come as they worshipped their false gods. Look at what happened, chapter 25, verse 3. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. The great sin of idol worship resulted in the death of all those who had yoked themselves to Moab's gods because Israel had one father. They were again rebelling against the father's love just as they were about to enter the promised land. This could not be. How did this happen? What Balaam couldn't do to Israel by appealing to dark forces, he could do and accomplish to Israel by appealing to their flesh. And so that's what he did. We get an illustration of this because at the same time, an Israelite man named Zimri brazenly brought a Midianite prostitute into his tent while Moses and the whole congregation are weeping over what's going on in Israel, being yoked to Baal, the punishment, a plague that was upon them, Aaron's grandson, Phinehas, saw 
what Zimri and the prostitute were up to. He saw them running into a tent, and he grabbed his spear. He opened the tent door, and he killed them both because Israel has one father, and Phinehas was jealous for him. And God gave Phinehas and his descendants a perpetual priesthood because he knew God had one father. He was jealous for him, and by his actions, he made atonement for Israel, and the plague of death stopped. Later, we'll read in Numbers that Israel would fight the Midianites, and guess who would die by the hand of an Israel sword in that battle? Balaam himself. The one who wanted to curse them would die at their hands. And I thought reading this, you know, some temptations never change. The temptations of flesh are still alive and well. The temptations to give our hearts away to someone or something else, it's still alive and well. We have to guard ourselves from replacing our love of God with things that the world supplies that become idols in our lives. We have but one Father. He deserves our deep devotion, our time, our energy, our worship. So like Israel, when we look back at these oracles, we're also a chosen people. We're also a conquering people making a difference in this world. We're also a contented people because of who God is. And our king reigns in our hearts. And so what's a child to do with the father such as ours? Couldn't we be a little braver than the rest of the world because we have a father who's a protector? Couldn't we be a little more trusting when we face trials because our Father is strong? Couldn't we live our lives a little more gratefully because our Father is so generous? And since God's our only Father, couldn't we be loyal to his love by being entirely devoted to him? Look at our last verse in 1 John. John says this. See what kind of love the Father's given to us? That we should be called children of God, and so we are. This is us. Aren't you glad? Let me pray. Lord, we do give you praise, worship, honor. May you teach us to live lives entirely devoted to you, because of who you are and who we are in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.